This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. Yeah, well, great. Okay, so today we're continuing our series, Gagging Jesus, the stuff that we wish he had never said. And today we're talking about the things that Jesus said about himself. And all these past few weeks, we've been talking about the things that he said about various issues that we encounter in life, uh, divorce and remarriage. What did he say about anger? What did he say about possessions? What did he say about uh, wealth and poverty? What did he say uh, about a whole host of things? And so I'm going to ask us to turn to John uh, chapter 8, verse 13. Okay. Is that working? Sorry. Okay, there we go. So the Pharisee said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. So Jesus is basically being um, attacked here. By the people are listening to him and saying, because you're bearing witness about yourself, then your witness is not true. And he says, even if I do bear witness about myself, it is true because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. And uh, as you examine some of the things that Jesus said, I just want us to read something that uh, C.S. Lewis said regarding the claims of Jesus about himself. Uh, and in, in this thing where we have lunatic, lord, or liar, here's the thing that he says. So some of you might not be able to see it uh, very clearly, but I'll just read it to you. I'm trying to prevent anyone, this is C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And as you survey some of the things that Jesus said about himself, you will find yourself inclined to agree with the words of C.S. Lewis. Because some of the things that Jesus says about himself, when you examine them and you take your hat off as a Christian and you put on the hat of the people that were living in the context, the people that he was talking to, you will realize that some of the things he said was very difficult for them to understand because they had a context, they had a reference point. So here's a person who's claiming to have equality with the Son of God and he's talking to people that have in their writings the testimony of prophets like Ezekiel, who in his vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God saw uh, these beings, these four living creatures that had four faces and had wings with eyes everywhere, and there were wheels with eyes, and then there was this guy sitting on a throne, and from what appeared to be his waist was fire all the way down, and from that, uh, what appeared to be his waist going up was gleaming metal. And here's this person who's saying, when you look at me, that's exactly what you should be thinking about. I'm exactly like that person. And so, for, you know, when, you, when these guys were trying to think through this and, 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 and imagine, and they look at the guy, as Isaiah says, he had no beauty about him to attract us to him. He had no majesty that we should desire him to the extent that you have Judas who was required to actually not just give them the right moment to arrest Jesus, but to actually identify who Jesus was. 
It wasn't a simple case of saying, hey, you, Jesus of Nazareth, in the pink suit, please step forward. They needed someone who would identify him because he could have been just like one of any of his disciples. They could have arrested Simon or Thaddeus. They could have arrested Judas, the other Judas. They could have arrested uh, Bartholomew because he was so run-of-the-mill, so ordinary that he looked just like everybody else. And so he's standing there and saying, that guy that Ezekiel said, that's me. And so everyone is looking at him and saying, there's something wrong with you. You've gone crazy. And then when he was offered the opportunity to walk back his comments, his claims, do you realize when you say that you're the son of God, you're equating yourself to God? Instead of uh, walking back his claims, he would, as Americans say, double down on the claims and actually make even more outrageous and even more sensational stuff to the extent that people just ended up concluding one of two things. The first response is that he was demonic. He had a demon. So on one occasion, the Jews are talking to him and saying, are we right to say that you're demon-possessed and you're actually a Samaritan, you're not even a Jew? You know, and then he answers them uh, something, and then they say, now we don't even need any more evidence. Now we know that you have a demon. Because Abraham, our father, died. And the prophets along with him, they died. But now <laughs> you are saying that anyone who listens to your words will live forever. You have a demon, you must be crazy. But then there were other people who looked at his life, who looked at his works, and saw them as the evidence that what he was saying about himself was true. So they held him to be divine. And among these uh, was uh, what we now know as the Doubting Thomas. Thomas, uh, when he saw the hands and the feet and the sight of Jesus after the resurrection, declared, my Lord and my God. But he was not the only one to do so. Even the Roman centurion, when he was standing there at the cross and seeing the events that took place around the death of Jesus, declared this truly was the Son of God. When Martha was discussing with him about uh, the death of Lazarus, She said to him, I know that you are the son of God, the Christ who has come into the world. So you have a very clear divide. Either the guy is demonic or is divine. There was nothing in between. You could not dismiss the words of Jesus for hyperbole. He's just exaggerating for effect. He's speaking like a politician. Because if someone says, for example, that I believe so much in this person that uh, even if they die before the elections come, we are all going to go and vote for that person's corpse. What you can say to that person is basically, well, I, I, I think they're not talking literally. It's hyperbole, right? They are, you know, they're just exaggerating. For, they're trying to tell you how deeply convinced they are of the candidature of the person. And so you can kind of excuse that. But here when people say, I think maybe you're talking, you know, <laughs> in large terms, uh, and maybe you're trying to be political, he says to, to these guys on one occasion, Uh, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, or actually, if you don't eat my flesh and don't drink my blood, you have no life in you. And unlike all other politicians that are trying to satisfy the base, as they say, and trying to enlarge the tent, he has no interest of doing that. He is actually offending his base. And he says, the disciples said, hey, hang on. (laughs) Is this guy going to give us his flesh to eat? This is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? And they all left him. His own disciples, his own followers. If you're trying to build up a political party, that's not the way to do it. But Jesus wasn't interested in building a political party and making political statements. He was interested in telling the truth about who he was. It was just a a problem that the the truth about what he was and who he was was difficult for those that listened to him uh, to receive. So we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus said about himself. There's a lot that he said. I'm just going to focus on a few things. And if I seem like I'm rushing, it's because I've got uh, quite a few things to cover, okay? So the first thing is the bread of life. That's what we're going to look at. Um, And if you look at that scripture, it says, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that's in John chapter 6, verse 35. Now, uh, this is uh, the day after he has performed a sign of feeding 5,000 people. And the people went looking around everywhere for him. And when they found him, uh, he said to them, I tell you the truth, you have not come looking for me because of the signs, but because of the bread that you ate. But do not work for the food that spoils, but rather that which lasts to eternal life. And then they said, okay, uh, so what are the works that God requires that we do? And then he says, well, the works of God are simple. Believe in the one that he sent. And that's it. And he said, okay, but what sign are you going to perform? This is the day after he has fed the 5,000. What sign are you going to perform that we may believe in you? Ah, okay. Because, you see, our fathers ate bread in the wilderness. So what are you going to do? And then he says, basically, the bread that your fathers ate that came from heaven was a type and a shadow of the bread that is standing before you right now. I am the bread of life to which that was turning and speaking to. And then if you look at Exodus 16, where there's that story, and some of these scriptures, I'm just going to be giving them to you. They're not up there. Exodus 16 speaks about this bread that came from heaven. It was given when people started grumbling and saying, hey, do you bring us in the wilderness to die? And God sent bread for them to eat from heaven. And uh, when it came, the people were asking each other, what is this? And they gave it the name manna, which means, what is it? And so when they, uh, the people that were speaking to Jesus and he was saying to them, I'm the bread of life, they were unaware that just like their fathers had done, they were doing the same thing with the bread of life. People were asking each other, what is this? Some were saying that this is John the Baptist. There were others who were saying this is Elijah. There were yet others who were saying this is Jeremiah. Then there were others who were saying he's one of the prophets, just one of the prophets from of old who was, you know, been raised from the dead. So it could be Habakkuk, it could be, you know, Zephaniah, it could be Obadiah, it could be Nahum, just any one of those old prophets who has been, you know, raised from the dead. And you notice that they did not ascribe to him a unique ministry or a unique anointing because sometimes when you, and most times actually, when you come across something you don't know, you tend to want to define it uh, out of the experience that you've had, out of the past and out of history. And that's what they did with Jesus. So they were also going around and asking each other, what is this and what is this? This bread that had come down from heaven. And if you read about uh, the bread that came down from heaven in the day of the fathers in the wilderness, there was an instruction. Do not collect more than one day's ration. And then there's some people who disobeyed God's command and they took more than they needed. And then the next day it was full of worms and it stank. It was corrupt. It was rotting. You know? and, uh, but if you look at what the word says about this bread that came down from heaven, there was a word that was spoken by David as a prophecy saying, my holy one will not be allowed to see corruption. So even if this bread that came down from heaven for the fathers, after only one day has seen corruption and has been attacked by worms, that's not going to happen to this particular brand of loaf. That's not going to, put, to happen to this particular brand of bread. He's not going to suffer the same fate as that bread uh, uh, suffered. If you've ever wondered, why did Jesus rise on the third day, not the fifth or the seventh or the eighth day? Because if you read about how they were talking about Lazarus's body on the fourth day was already, there's going to be a smell already, okay? It's already decomposing. So third day was to fulfill that promise that this is not going to happen to him. He is not going to rot in the grave. The worms will not attack his body because this is the flesh that is going to give life to all the world. 
And then also when you look at the bread that they ate in the wilderness, the Bible says in Psalm 78 verse 25 that they ate the bread of angels. So this bread was, according to the scriptures, the kind of bread that angels were eating. It was sustaining angels. But when they ate it, Jesus pointed out to them that your fathers ate the bread, but though it was the bread of angels, they still died in the wilderness. Because no matter what kind of food you eat, what kind of bread you're eating, it can only sustain life as long as you have it. So there's a story about a man who was in the paper some, I think, two years or a year ago, who wanted to fast like Jesus for 40 days in the mountains. And he got to day 28 and died of starvation. No one, when they got to his body, thought to themselves, well, he died of starvation, so if we give him something to eat, he will come back to life. Because they understood that food can only sustain the life that you have. Once that life is gone, food loses its value. So exactly like that bread, even though it's coming from heaven and it's the bread of angels, as long as these people have died, it cannot resurrect or bring them back to life. But not so with this bread that he's speaking of, which comes to people that are dead and causes them to live and gives them a life that is not like the life that they had that was from their fathers, but a life such as the one that he himself has. And what kind of life is that? John 5, 26 says, as the father has life in himself, so has he given to the son that he may too have life in himself. So it is actually the life of God to the extent that if God was to try to destroy the life that you have, it would be like committing suicide because we have the life that he has in quality and in texture. There is no difference. He has given his very life to us. You know what happens when we give our life to Christ? We give him our life and he gives us his life. What a nice trade, isn't it? It's not like you're doing him a favor because your life, what is it worth? It's just a vapor. It's just passing away, but he gives us his own life. A life that is superior in quality to sickness, that is impervious to death, impervious to infirmity, the very life of God. And when do we get that life? First John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. The minute you eat of this bread, you believe on him, you receive the life that he has. And so he says, I am the bread of life. And because we only have a few minutes, we're going to have to move on to the next thing that he said. I would have loved to stay here for the whole day <laughs> talking about this life, but we have to move on. And he speaks of himself as the light of the world. And let's look at that passage. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And he's responding to a question, teacher, this man was born blind. Whose sin was it? Did he sin or his parents? And this is the answer that Jesus gives and says, I am the light of the world. And if you just can, if I can bore you with a little bit of physics, uh, the only reason that you can see me and I can see you is because the light that is coming from whatever is, and uh, I've got some people here who are looking at me and saying, we're watching you here. Light reflects off me and into your eyes, and then you can see me, and the same is happening. So just everything I'm seeing in this room is because the light that's coming upon it is reflecting from the object, and it's coming into my eyes. So if there is no light, I struggle to see, or if it's dim, there's more difficulty when you know, trying to go around and, and to navigate. So if you look at the plague that uh, God visited on the Egyptians, the plague of darkness, it was a darkness so thick that people could almost feel it. It was a very thick darkness. No one could see anywhere. But you know what's interesting about that as I thought about this thing is the blind person who could not see 
and the person with 20-20 vision were all the same. In that darkness, there was no difference between the blind and the person that could see. Because in the absence of light, it doesn't matter whether you've got strong eyesight or you can't see at all. If there is no light, no one is seeing anything. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is saying that up till this point, people have been living in darkness. Even those that claim that they can see, who say we have the covenant. Ours is the heritage of the law and the commandments. Ours is the heritage of the glory and of the temple worship. They say that we are the Jews to whom God came. In the absence of light, they are the same as those blind people who are cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, who are cut off and foreigners and aliens to the covenants and the promises, who are without hope and without God in the world, those Gentiles who are blind. There is no difference, Paul says, between the Jew and the Gentile because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have gone astray like sheep. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. Whether you claim you can see like the Jew or you are blind like the Gentile, in the absence of the light of the world, you're all groping about in darkness. But when this light arises and gives illumination, then people can truly see what is happening. And this light is different from the light that we know because you must understand we are seeing by created light. This was the first of God's creative works. Let there be light and boom, there was light. So that's created light and it illuminates everything around us. But then there's also creative light. As John says, this is the word that we heard from the beginning. God is light and in him there is no darkness. So there is light that is created and then there's the creative light. And the light that is created can only illuminate for those who are able to see and is useful only to those that have eyesight. But the creative light goes beyond simply illuminating and actually gives the ability to see. That's why after he says, I am the light of the world, he shows us exactly what kind of light this is by spitting on the ground, making mud, putting it in the eyes of this guy and telling him to go and wash. A creative miracle. He just doesn't just switch on the light, oh darkness is gone, I can see. No, I switch on the light, you can see if you could see before, but now those that can't see now have the ability to see. And that's for everybody and anyone who does not know Jesus Christ is walking in darkness. But when that light arises, you have a revelation of three things. I am a sinner. I need a savior, and the savior is Jesus Christ. And there are varying degrees of this darkness. There are those who don't appreciate that they are sinners. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then there are those who say, yes, I'm a sinner, but uh, I don't think I need a savior. All I need to do is to make sure that the good things I do outweigh the bad things that I do. Okay, so I got bad in me, but let me do more good stuff so that at the end of the age, we balance the scales. I've done more good than I've done evil, so I'm in. That's another kind of darkness. And then there are others who say, yes, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. But who is the savior? Oh, I'll look to Krishna. Oh, I'll look to Buddha. Uh, I'll believe on Allah. There are about 300 million gods in India. 300 million gods. Take your pick from the pantheon. Which God suits your mood today? Well, today I'm not feeling too good. I think I'll worship this kind of God. 300 million gods. That's another kind of darkness. Only the light of the world, when it comes and shines upon you, can give you the understanding that I'm a sinner, I need a savior, and the savior is Jesus Christ. Paul refers to this light and says, just as God said, let there be light. 
so has he caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in our hearts. He is the light of the world. And then we move on now, and uh, we see another claim that he makes, and he says, I'm the resurrection. And this one is pretty interesting. I like this one. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Jesus is saying this to Martha. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, four days after Lazarus has died and he's already in the grave. And uh, Jesus had said to Martha, your brother shall rise again. And then Martha says, I know that my brother shall rise again. <laughs> I know, I know, I know he's going to rise again. He's going to rise again in the last day at the resurrection. Because Martha had done crossroads. She had done a purple book. So she was doctrinally sound. I know there's a time that is coming. A day is coming when people are going to rise from the dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to rise. I know that. I know. But Jesus then says to Martha, understand something. The resurrection is not an event. It's not a time or a place. It's not even a doctrine. The resurrection is a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. When Jesus woke up in the morning to go and pray in the mountains, the resurrection woke up to go and pray in the mountains. When Jesus came down from the mountain and spoke to his disciples, the resurrection came and spoke to his disciples. Wherever he was, that's where the resurrection was. Don't look to the sweet by and by when you have me here. Because what you're looking at it to the sweet by and by in the future, as long as I'm here, I am the one that is, I am the one that was, I am the one that is to come. So the resurrection is a constant and continual uh, a process, not even a process, but a, a, a constant revelation. It's a constant because the person of Jesus straddles all of time. So if I'm here, the resurrection is fair game. And just to prove that he wasn't just, it's one of the things I love about Jesus so much, is that he just doesn't talk about things, he demonstrates it. And then he says, guys, roll the stone away. And then even Martha says, Martha had been saying, look, I believe that even now God can give you whatever you, you ask. But now when <laughs> crunch time, it's like, oh, but now there should be a smell in there. Let's not open this thing. Let's just leave things as they are. Because it's been four days. And death has been working. The maggots have been working. And all those things that happen when the process of decay begins to happen in a body. And Jesus just said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And they rolled the stone away and three words, Lazarus, come forth. And you know, I like to you know, meditate and I like to think about the scriptures. So, so it makes me sound a, little, you know, a bit dramatic. But I was imagining to myself, that the maggots already attacking this body. At the sound of his voice, they scurried for cover. When all these things that were happening in his body, because when a body begins to decay, all sorts of things begin to happen. Everything that was happening was reversed in an instant, immediately. And Lazarus was whole, and he came out of that tomb. And that was not something that was like, wow, wow, whoa, this is, you know, this is amazing. Yes, for the whole crowd. But he had already spoken about this somewhere else. Look at this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. 
live. Do not marvel at this. Listen to that. Do not marvel at this. You're like, oh, like, no, 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 guys. Don't marvel at this, okay? All right? Because an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's John chapter 5. And you know that the, uh, the resurrection of Lazarus is after that. So that is a physical representation of a spiritual truth that is going to happen at the time that Martha loves so much the resurrection. You know, when uh, Matthew tells us something that's very interesting about the death of Jesus and the events surrounding it, he says that when Jesus died, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Rocks were split. There was an earthquake. And then the tombs of the saints were split open. But only after he was raised from the dead did the bodies of the saints, they came out of their tombs and they entered the holy city where they were seen by many. So imagine you're driving in and you're coming from Mashingo at five in the morning and you're going past uh, Mbuzi and you see all these people climbing out of their graves and you see some other people trying to help others out of the grave. And then you see those who were first to come out of the grave, they're already standing by and they're asking for a lift. Get me to join a city or join a, uh, to join a city, is it? Is it join a center or something like that? Get me there. I need a lift into town. They entered the holy city and many saw them. Unprecedented. This had never happened before. A mass resurrection. All surrounding the person of Jesus Christ. Because where he is, there is resurrection. Where he is, there is life. They saw the Samuels. They saw the Samsons, the Gideons. They saw them coming into the, into the city and they looked and said, whoa, wow, these guys, where are they coming from? This is not zombies. This is not thriller. Okay, the video of thriller with the zombie. No, no, this is, these are people that are alive with resurrection bodies who are following Jesus into his glory. He is the resurrection and he is the life. So I'm going to look at three other statements. I call them the I am statements. Where he simply said, I am. You know, he didn't put anything else to it. He just said, I am. And here's the first one. John chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. And that's the Amplified. However, when they rode three or four miles, the disciples, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and approaching the boat. And they were terrified. But Jesus said to them, it is I, be not afraid, as it says in most of our translations. But this is what the Greek is actually saying. I am. Stop being frightened. Then they were quite willing and glad for him to come into the boat. And now the boat went at once to the land they had steered toward. And immediately they reached the shore toward which they had been slowly making their way. <laughs> These guys were in the middle of the sea, rowing against the elements. There's a choppy kind of a water. There's a calm water. There's hard graft. And they see this guy walking on the water. And they think, as you would think, some of us here, if you see someone walking on water, you think, hey, <laughs> that's a spirit, that's a ghost. But Jesus says, no, actually, I am. Hang on, okay? This is a proof of his divinity. And if they'd been just a little bit more acquainted with their Bible, they would have known this scripture from Job chapter 9, verse 8, where Job is extolling the virtues of God, even though he's complaining, but he speaks about the greatness of God. That's the context. And then he says, he alone, speaking about God, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So disciples, if you see a person walking on the water, it's not a witch. 
It's not a spirit. If you believe the words of Job, he alone can walk on the water. So if he's walking on the water, this is God who is coming to us. This is the understanding that Jesus wanted them to have. This is a proof of the divinity. Unlike the prophets of old, Moses, Joshua, Elisha, Elijah, they all had to make a path whenever they wanted to cross you know, the waters. They had to smack the water and then this thing opens up and then they walk across. But Jesus just gets on top of the water. And as I said already, this was choppy waters, okay? It's not like you know, the postcard type thing with the sunset and it's so gentle and so calm. And you think, oh, I wish I was there. This is choppy waters and he's walking on the waters without being perturbed. And, and, and as I said again, I love to imagine. I love to think. I love to think about those waters being, you know, swishing to and fro and the disciples struggling, but only Jesus actually walking very casually towards them. And the Bible says that when he entered the boat, they were immediately where they needed to be. The entry of Jesus into the boat was an end to their struggle. The entry of Jesus into the boat was an end to their works unto salvation. The entry of Jesus into their boat was an arrival in the instant to the place that they had been painstakingly through the law, through the works, through offerings, bulls and goats and sheep trying to make their way to this destination. But as he comes and he's received in the boat, it is immediately an arrival in the place. An immediate change of status. You are a royal priest. You are a new creation. You have been born of God. You are a child of God. Everything that belongs to him belongs to you. An immediate arrival. Because when Jesus comes into the boat, it is not business as usual. Because he is God. I am. And then he proves it. Second I am. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, they didn't think, oh, no, no, we need to, you know, correct his grammar. <laughs> they knew exactly what he was saying. Although I do know some people who, if this was a grammatical error, they'll stone you anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> but they knew this is not syntax stuff or whatever, you know, grammatical, and we need to teach him. They knew exactly what he's saying, I'm God. But you know what? really grabbed my attention when I read this was actually where this started. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is where it began and it went downhill from there. And if you read that up to verse 58, you'll find that the audience is the same. The audience is the Jews who had believed in him. And I began to think to myself, if these people had believed in him at this moment, how is it that a few verses down the road they're ready to stone him? What has happened in that? What, what's the transaction? What then is it that they believed? You can, as I said, be noble Bereans and you can read this after, but you'll see that, that conversation goes downhill very fast. And then they say, no, we've never been slaves. How can you say we're going to be free? He says, anyone who sins is a slave of sin. You know, but uh, if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. And then this thing goes on about Abraham is our father. No, you're doing the works of your father, who's the devil. It goes down very quickly. And then they say, this is where they talk about, you know, you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. Those that had believed in him, these are the ones who are saying this. 
Which is why it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say like we do these days, oh, you're believed. You're giving your life to Jesus. This is the best decision of your life. If you die, if your bus hits you today, you go to heaven. It's like, oh, now you're believed in me. If you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But the more I thought about it, I found that these guys believed in him because there is something about Jesus and the things that he was doing that said, okay, as far as his teaching is concerned, we are okay. As far as perhaps maybe if we can say he's a philosopher, we are willing to adapt the things that he said into our culture. We have things like people just say you're trying to be a good Samaritan, you know? Uh, go the extra mile, you know? It's now part of our, you know, out of, part of the idioms that you can learn in school. And these are the teachings of Jesus. We, can, we are willing to adopt these into the culture. And we're willing to see him as prophets. You know, I find it very interesting that uh, the Quran actually mentions Jesus more than any other prophet. Their own prophet Muhammad is mentioned by name four times. And Jesus is mentioned just by his name, apart from all the other titles, 25 times. You include all the other references to him, it's 187 times. The most mentioned person in the Quran. They are willing to accept that he did come born of a virgin. They will accept, they will agree with you and nod their heads. Yes, 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 we, are, we, we believe that he was born and he was a perfect child. They will throw you some stuff. Did you know that he spoke when he was an infant and that he gave life to birds when he was a child? They'll even give you some other stuff. They're willing to accept that he was a great prophet. They're willing to even accept in tradition that Jesus is going to come and he's going to uh, bring judgment to the earth in the last day. He's going to judge and he's going to fight the Antichrist. They will actually accept that. But just say that he is God, and that agreement disappears. Gandhi said, if Christians could be more like Christ, there would be a great service, I'm just paraphrasing here, to their own salvation. He said, I hate Christians, but I love your Christ. He loved the teachings of Jesus, and he co-opted the Sermon on the Mount into his teaching about nonviolent response and reaction. But there is no record of him having bowed the knee to accept Jesus as Lord. Because Jesus is okay when he's a philosopher, when he's a teacher. You can come up with your own ideas, and you come up with your own theories and say Jesus' philosophy uh, is one that uh, is part of a greater scheme of other philosophies and other teachings. And Rob spoke uh, you know, to us about this last week. But if he is God, then his words don't have sectarian impact. They are universal in their application. If he is God, then life does not even begin at conception. Life begins before. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. If he is God, then marriage is universally and permanently between a man and a woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So he better not be God, because if he is God, then we have to abandon everything else that we have believed. So we are ready to believe you. Jesus, as a prophet, we're ready to accept you as a great teacher. We're ready to receive you as one of the philosophers of the level of Socrates and Confucius and all these other guys. But do not tell us that you are I am. And this culture and in this day, there are stones, ideological and intellectual stones, being thrown at the concept of absolute truth. Because if you have absolute truth, then you must all genuflect and bow the knee. And so let's gag him permanently. Let's pick up stones to kill him. Because if there is no God, then we can do what we like. 
but he hid himself. And then they got him in the end, and then he came up anyway again. They couldn't keep the truth down. They put it in a grave. On the third day, the truth came back. You can do what you want. You can stone the truth, can kill the truth, but the truth will always come back. An absolute standard for all times. So he says, I am, and we are to uh, do the best that we can to align ourselves with what he says because he is God. And the last one here. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. I don't know what you do when you read your Bible. I have images in my head playing out. I see the soldiers coming with their weapons, with their swords, with their clubs, with their lanterns, with their training. And they come there, they are being led by Judas. And they come there and they say, which one of you is Jesus of Nazareth? In fact, in this one, he actually initiates. He says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Then he says, I am. And then I'm imagining these men, mighty, strong men, not ring a ring of roses, we all fall down type of stuff. These are men, who, men of war. They draw back and they all fall to the ground. Their weapons useless. And you see, there's, he's, he's, not, he's not carrying anything. He's not armed. There's no sword in his hand. He simply says, this is who I am. And the pronouncement of Jesus about who he is has so much power to knock people physically off the ground, uh, you know, off their feet onto the ground. For me, that is remarkable when I think about it. What is even more remarkable and surprising is that they actually get up again and they ask, who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, come, let us arrest you. Jesus didn't need the sword of Peter. He didn't need the 12 legions of angels. Just claiming that I am was enough to deal with these people. And it was not the first time. On a previous occasion where guards had been sent to arrest him, they got to the open square where he was speaking, once again unarmed, vulnerable. No bodyguards around him. He was unarmed, but he was also ungagged. And they got there and he was speaking. And they returned to their masters. And the masters asked, why have you not arrested him? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to put on suicide vests or to shoot up nightclubs, or to get into a vehicle and mow people down the shops to try and get people to believe what we believe. The truth has the power in itself to change enemies into friends. You only need to hear the ungagged Jesus. Remove the gag, let him speak for himself, let the truth speak, and then people will fall before him in accepting that truth. Just like these people that came out to arrest him, there's a documentary I was watching of a convert from, from Islam who said that I converted to Christianity by reading the Quran. I was reading the Quran and everything it says about Jesus, and I realized, hey, I'm on the wrong side. And he began to ask these questions that his imam could not answer. And he realized, I'm on the wrong team, and up to now, he's now one of the guys who do like an apologetic for uh, believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that you can actually prove it from the Quran. Can you imagine? Right there in enemy territory, just his words and the testimony about him 
is turning people to Christ. Let us have faith in the words that Jesus spoke regarding himself. We're hearing of people who have not heard any preaching in the Muslim world. They just see Jesus in a vision. He's not carrying a sword. He's not, you know, he's not got a gun or anything. He's just coming there and he's speaking, I am Jesus. And people are receiving Christ. There are missionaries that are getting there and finding a whole community has already come to Christ. Ah, yeah, 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 there's this guy. Can you please tell us more about him? Sometimes, you know, when you look at the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of the thing that he said, you can think, well, we need to kind of spice it up, you know, put something in there to make sure that, you know, this gospel can get to people. Because as simple as it is, it doesn't have the power that is required. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of those that believe. And if we have faith in the things that he said, and we believe his claims, and we tell others about those claims, we will see people coming to Christ in their numbers. And it's been happening for years, and will continue to happen until he returns. Because what Jesus said about himself is not a mere claim. It's not a, 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 a trial to become a political figure or anything. It was him mentioning and speaking the truth about who he was and truth that can save, truth that can deliver, and truth that can prosper. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that as we enter into a time of remembering you in Easter, as we remember your words about yourself, we can have great courage in the things that we have believed because you have not only spoken, but you have demonstrated. We have the witness of your words in our lives. We have the witness of your word in our families. We have the witness of your word in our hearts. You are alive, you are well, you are real, and you are coming again. And we thank you that you have chosen us in you before the foundation of the world. We thank you that we are on your side and that you're in our lives. We thank you for this bread of life that we eat of every day. This light of the world that illuminates our path in a dark world. We thank you that you are the resurrection and we have hope for this life and even the life to come. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We glorify your name and may you be praised and may you be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.